0: With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson.
1: Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the Agnet News Hour. Coming up later, weather could create some significant disease issues for almond growers. And also, more than 200 million pounds of California avocados are expected this season. We'll have both of those stories. But our top story today, the person who served as USDA's first Farm Production and Conservation Undersecretary has passed away, leaving a legacy of service to agriculture. Rod Bain has more.
2: News Monday of the passing of a champion of agriculture. I'm fortunate to be a part of USDA, their Farm Service Agency, Natural Resources Conservation Service, and Risk Management Agency. Those three agencies get to work with farmers every day. They're passionate about it, and it's just great to work alongside some great people at USDA. The voice of Bill Northey from an interview at the 2020 Commodity Classic. Northey served three years as USDA's first undersecretary for farm production and conservation starting in 2008. 18, the position created after a 2017 realignment of the department. Prior to his USDA post, Northey was Iowa's Secretary of Agriculture for over 11 years. Northey was 64 years old at the time of his death. Tributes and remembrances were issued from across the ag spectrum and in his home state, where Governor Kim Reynolds ordered flags, Lord and half-staff across Iowa. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
1: ALTEC released its 2023 U.S. Harvest Analysis Report. Chad Smith looks at the findings.
3: Dr. Max Hawkins, tech support for the ALTEC Mycotoxin Management Team says to follow the weather to find the mycotoxins.
4: You get into the western Corn Belt and some of the northern prairies, it was very dry. When we get into really dry weather, we tend to have fewer mycotoxins because we kind of take the fusariums out of the equation. But we still had aspergillus toxins. That could be a problem because aspergillus is what produces aflatoxin, and we did find it further north than we typically would. We found it into northern Iowa, into the Dakotas, and it was even maybe a little more severe than normal, even into the southern portions of the Canadian prairies. As that season progressed, the rains came in. The eastern corn belt began in July and that kicked off the fusarium molds, the fusarium mycotoxins, and they're much more highly occurring as we get east of the Mississippi, get into the Ohio Valley, and then follow that upward through Michigan on into Pennsylvania, New York, and New England.
3: He says mycotoxins carry severe risks to animal
4: performance and health. And those performance factors can just be from feed intake, digestive processes, gut wall integrity, liver function. They can also impact the animal's ability to develop fully expected titer from health treatments. If we get into breeding herds and breeding flocks that are vaccinated on a regular basis, we may not get the full expected titer levels because of the lowered immune response that we see in the animal. This year, where a lot of the livestock industry under some economic pressure. Anything that happens that makes feed efficiency gain, those types of things less, that even complicates things much more. So if you can't get the expected health, if you can't get the expected performance, we can trace a lot of that back to mycotoxin pressure.
3: Hawkins says producers need to regularly test their feeds
4: and ingredients. Mycotoxins can increase during storage periods. So as they increase later on this winter and into spring, what was a safe crop back in fall now may be somewhat of a risk. What was a risk in the fall now can be an extremely high risk. That's why we recommend that they continue to test periodically, particularly as we break into new sources of grain and forages as we move into the winter and spring. We can blend different sources together to help lower that risk that goes into the finished feed products.
3: The mycotoxin risk can change at any time. High-risk corn and silage last year will be even riskier this year.
4: If you started out at low risk early in the season with corn silage and corn grain harvest, things have changed drastically as we get into that residue material that we use for feedstocks.
3: For more information, go to alltech.com. Chad Smith reporting.
1: This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. In today's national spotlight, USDA's Outlook Board experts are getting ready to release their new forecasts for crop supplies, exports, and prices. Gary Crawford has more.
2: USDA's outlook board analysts are getting ready to produce this Thursday's new round of monthly crop supply and demand forecasts but unlike last month when analysts had new revised estimates for all the major US crops to work with
5: this month we you know we're not getting anything new regarding domestic supplies
2: so usda outlook board chairman mark Chekanowski says analysts will be focusing on two things one production prospects for competing crops in south america and two on the market situation for this past season's u.s crops
5: u.s farmers are marketing the crops that they harvested this past fall so we're looking at the uh export pace for all of these commodities and um Trying to piece together what that means for our total volume of exports for the marketing year.
2: USDA will have forecasts for exports, domestic use, and prices. All of this coming out this Thursday, noon, Eastern Time. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
1: That's today's National Spotlight. In today's livestock news, the smallest cattle herd in decades means record beef prices may be on the way to the grocery store soon. Michael Clements shares more on what this means for farmers and ranchers.
2: USDA's biannual cattle inventory report shows the nation's cattle herd at 87.2 million head, down roughly 2% from last year, and the lowest herd size in 73 years. American Farm Bureau Federation economist Baird Nelson says it's all because of recent droughts.
5: The combination of higher input prices and drought drove farmers and ranchers to market more cattle. And not just more cattle, more female cattle that are responsible for replacing the beef herd. Now, we're looking at a beef herd of about 28.2 million heads. Amongst that, we have a calf crop that is 33.6 million. Now, this is down 2%, but it's the smallest calf crop since 1948. That's in 76 years.
2: Despite the low inventory numbers, Nelson says there is still a high level of cattle on feed.
5: So right now, cattle on feed supplies are strong. That means what we have in the pipeline for beef supplies is strong. And so that should keep prices for our consumers at the grocery stores kind of stable for the time being. But as that supply begins to dry up, that's when we're gonna see beef supplies start to get tighter and tighter. And this could lead to the record prices that I think are going to occur in 2024 and 2025.
2: Nelson says that while some cattle producers will benefit from higher prices, tighter inventory doesn't mean good news all around.
5: But not all farmers are going to be seeing that. You know, when we look at guys that are trying to expand, for example, they're going to have to pay higher dollars to get their hands on cattle to expand their operation. So a little bit of a black swan event that can occur with these higher
2: prices. Read more on the Market Intel page at FB.org. Michael Clements, Washington.
1: Wyoming rancher Mark Isley was handed the gavel during the 2024 Cattle Industry Convention held last week in Orlando, Florida. Isley says his focus during his time as president is to advocate for opportunities to strengthen the industry for future generations. Very
2: few farmers and ranchers in it anymore. They can kind of do what they want to do and it doesn't seem to matter because there's not enough of us in rural America to outvote that. But we're so critical everybody wants to be well fed well that's what it takes to be well fed you've got to keep these ranches and farms in transition you have to be able to go to the next generation you have to keep them viable the death tax i wonder how many ranches and farms have paid for themselves over and over and over again through no fault of their own other than the government wanting tax money
1: other priorities for isley include producers freedom to operate protecting property rights and reinforcing the cattle industry's position as an ally in preserving open spaces and wildlife habitat through managed grazing practices. But the top of his list, the Farm Bill. We've gotta wrap up this Farm Bill. We've gotta get some certainty in the Farm Bill. Also important, he says, a vaccine bank for animal agriculture, protecting checkoffs and educating the public about cell-cultured meat. Isley will serve as president until next year's Cattle Industry Convention. Chuck Zimmerman joins us now with more from the Cattle Industry Convention. At CattleCon
6: 2024, I'm visiting with Emily Stackhouse with Alltech. And first of all, Emily, tell me what you do for Alltech.
7: Well, thanks for having me, Chuck. Um, I'm the research manager in livestock and environment for Alltech.
6: Well, I understand you just uh, were able to do a presentation here at Cattlemen's College. Tell us a little bit about your subject.
7: So I was talking a little bit broadly on sustainability, but also when we think about The large picture of sustainability and the beef supply chain, Um, those dairy calves and beef on dairy cross calves that are coming into our beef system and how they can actually help increase our overall output of beef while helping us decrease our carbon emissions essentially because when those calves from the dairy enter our beef system, they come in with a lower embedded emissions than our purebred beef calves.
6: Are there certain reasons for that that you might be able to point to?
7: Yeah, so our dairy calves that enter the beef system, um, they don't take away from our purebred beef calves in the marketplace, and so I think there is a place for them and there is a need, and um, I think they're important to our overall beef production, but those calves are essentially what we would call a byproduct or a co-product of dairy production. And when you think about dairy production, your primary product is milk, but you do have a secondary product of meat, which is going to come from calves that are not held back as replacements, and then also your cold cows will eventually join the beef system as well. And so when those calves leave the dairy system as a co-product, they're going to have essentially a lower emissions that they take with them because most of those emissions from the dairy system are going to be allocated to milk which is the primary product of the system.
6: And all of this is part of the Planet of Plenty right?
7: Yeah definitely it fits into our our Planet of Plenty vision at Alltech where we're striving for nutrition for all, replenishing natural resources and revitalizing economies.
6: Here at NCBA, they did their sustainability forum, which is something they've been doing for quite some time. Not a new subject, but something that's near and dear to the heart of Alltech as a company.
7: Yeah, certainly. I think Alltech was talking about sustainability before we all referred to it as sustainability. Uh, so it's something that we think about on a daily basis here at Alltech.
6: Anything else about, like, say, the presentation? Did you get to talk to some of the folks that were there anybody have any feedback questions about all
7: that yeah so there there's some good feedback i think it's interesting for folks to think about how we allocate carbon emissions in our beef and dairy systems and um, sometimes we tend to think that those dairy calves are competing with our beef calves in the marketplace but it's good to know that they're not they're just contributing to our overall product Um, they're helping us produce more protein and they do help us lower our total carbon emissions from the beef system.
6: Wonderful. Thank you very much, Emily. It's great to meet you here at Calicon 2024. I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting.
1: This is the Agnet Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director, Brian German.
0: Information from the U.S. Department of Agriculture indicates that the farmer's share of the food dollar came down in 2022. Data provided by USDA's Economic Research Service demonstrates that U.S. farming operations received 14.9 cents per dollar spent on domestically produced food in 2022, illustrating a decrease of 0.3 cents from 2021. This portion covers operating expenses and input costs from non-farm establishments. The remaining 85.1 cents, known as the marketing share, goes to industries involved in transporting, processing, and selling food to consumers. The overall trend reflects a decline in the farm share over the years, attributed in part to increased spending on food away from home, where farm establishments receive a lower share due to added meal preparation costs. For comparison, the farm share was measured at 17.5 cents per dollar back in 1993. The supporting Farm Operations Act has been introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives to address the escalating costs of agricultural labor. The legislation aims to freeze the adverse effect wage rate for H-2A non-immigrant workers for two years, maintaining 2023 wage levels until the end of 2025. Various ag industry groups, including American Farm Bureau Federation and the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives, support the bill, acknowledging the pressing need to mitigate rising farm labor expenses. The wage rate has more than doubled since 2005 to a national average of $17.55 per hour in 2024. While seen as a necessary step for immediate relief, industry representatives emphasize the need for broader agricultural labor reforms in the long run. The bill represents a move toward creating a wage standard that benefits both farmers and employees, offering short-term relief to uncertainties in the labor market. The California Avocado Commission has released its official crop forecast for the fiscal year 2023-2024. The commission is anticipating a yield of 208 million pounds of California avocados, a decrease from the previous year's volume of 237 million pounds. Weather conditions are likely to impact harvest timing with a potentially wet winter, prompting some growers to delay picking, allowing avocados to grow larger and potentially increasing overall crop volume. The majority of the harvest, 196 million pounds, will consist of the popular Hass variety while lamb Hass is expected to contribute 6 million pounds, Jim 5 million pounds, and 1 million pounds from other varieties. A new consumer advertising campaign focusing on locally grown and sustainable California avocados is planned along with an expanded trade support program including retail and food service promotions. Registration is now open for the fourth California Dairy Sustainability Summit coming up next month in Davis. This year's event will be taking place on Tuesday, March 26th at the UC Davis Conference Center and there will also be an option to participate virtually. Optional tours of UC Davis laboratories will also be offered on Monday, March 25th. The summit brings the dairy community together along with policymakers, regulators, researchers, supply chain partners, and other stakeholders for a day of informational sessions promoting the widespread investment and adoption of technologies and practices that address environmental, financial, and energy challenges, along with cow health and comfort. Speakers include personnel from the California Milk Advisory Board, Dairy Cares, CDFA, and the Central Valley Water Board. More information about the event and how to register is available at CADairySummit.com. Storm systems last year brought significant challenges for growers, particularly as it relates to outbreaks of aerial phytophthora in almond orchards. As California anticipates strengthening El Nino conditions, almond growers are advised to be prepared for a potential reoccurrence of issues created by Phytophthora syringae. An article from UC Davis and UC Riverside plant pathologists highlights the damage caused by the disease last year, including severe branch dieback and cankers with profuse gumming in almond trees. Phytophthora syringae has historically been associated with aerial phytophthora cankers during wet years, and the recent outbreak emphasized the pathogen's ability to attack young shoots without pruning wounds. With the disease historically associated with wet El Nino years, almond growers are advised to monitor and prune during dry weather to reduce the risk of infection. Sales account manager for Agroliquid Dylan Rogers joins us today to highlight the importance of calcium and sulfur considerations in crops. So calcium
8: is going to be very important this time of year. Um, calcium is important for cell division, cell elongation, kind of that the structure of the cell. So. Things are going to start moving along quickly. Um, leaves are coming out, buds are swelling, a lot of cell division happening. So, calcium, sufficient calcium at this point in time is is crucial. You'll get guys that are putting calcium in their bloom sprays, and so keeping those cells full of calcium helps with disease pressure. It'll it'll give you some disease resistance, and in the long run, it's calcium's going to give you a you know, a healthier crop, a healthier nut, a more quality nut. So definitely make sure that uh, your calcium levels are sufficient. Uh, as far as sulfur, you hear in the, you know, the nutrition world and, and fertilizer world, you hear the buzzword synergy a lot. It, it is a buzzword, but it's very important. And it, sulfur is one of those things that gives a synergistic effect. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to help your nitrogen be more efficient. It's going to help get that nitrogen into the plant and help better utilize it. Sulfur can also be important for, you know, mitigating soil pH. So if if you're in a situation where you've got a high soil pH, there's there's products out there, Elemental Sulfur, Tiger 90, stuff like that, that uh, will help bring down that soil pH and get you kind of in that sweet spot.
0: I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network.
1: The American Lamb Board kicked off Lamb Lovers Month in February with an exciting campaign titled Show Us Your Chops. It invites consumers to enjoy savory lamb chops at their favorite restaurants or to cook their favorite recipes at home. The promotion features rack and loin chop recipes to help consumers create a romantic date night or a special dinner with friends or family featuring delicious American lamb. Consumers are invited to share their photos of their lamb chops at restaurants or at home on the ALB Consumer website or social media with the hashtag ShowUsYourChops. The contest will be promoted through social media advertising and sponsored blogger content throughout February. Jeff Elbert, ALB chairman, says, While Lamb Lovers Month has become a tradition for ALB, it's also a very effective promotion for reaching new consumers with recipes and information about American lamb to expand usage beyond the traditional holidays. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. The Agriculture Secretary recently weighed in on research and education as methods to improve consumer nourishment and, in turn, health outcomes. Rod Bain reports.
2: Food is medicine, the theme of a recent Department of Health and Human Services Summit. Among the subtopics discussed, the power and importance of nourishment. When I think
9: of nourishment, one of the things that we're trying to do is better understand the science of all of this.
2: That's Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. He was among a group of panelists covering the power and importance of nourishment at the summit he offered perspective on USDA efforts to address nourishment and the role it plays in healthier outcomes through science.
9: We funded recently a virtual center at Southern University down in Louisiana to give us a better understanding of the science of precision nutrition. How can you really understand precisely how to target that nutrition in a way that will generate the most significant benefit?
2: He adds there is an understanding regarding this research, understanding that it starts with what he calls an equity focus.
9: Understanding and appreciating the diets of African Americans, Hispanic Americans, et cetera, so that we would then be able to incorporate that information, that science, in decisions that we make relative to a WIC program, a school meal program, a SNAP program, a child care or senior care feeding program.
2: Beyond that, the secretary recognizes the need to better educate consumers about the importance of improved nourishment to overall health and wellness.
9: So our snap education and training program I think is an opportunity for us to work collaboratively with states to encourage them to do with us a better job of educating snap beneficiaries of how to utilize that dollar in a way that is supportive of nourishing and also recognizes the financial challenges that these families face.
2: Secretary Vilsack adds the focus of food as medicine also provides an opportunity to shift the focus of agricultural production from quantity to diversity.
9: It recognizes that so many small and mid-sized producers need different sources of income and different streams of income in order to survive and in order to thrive.
2: A personal reason is behind the Agriculture Secretary's thoughts odd and focus of improving nutrition in consumers and in turn bettering their health. Losing both parents at a young age due to what he says were environmental and food issues.
9: I think there's also a recognition that as we learn more about the science behind food and its capacity to, in fact, be medicine, we can indeed reduce the risk of chronic disease in this country, which obviously will have an impact on the individuals who will leave healthier lives.
2: There are also the potential impacts to fund other aspects of our nation's economy.
9: We spend a great deal of government funding and, frankly, of our own individual finances on health care and health care insurance. To the extent that we can be a better consumer, if you will, reducing the risk of chronic disease, we can also, I think, free up resources that can then go into building a healthier and stronger country and world.
2: I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
1: The Clean Fuels Conference is underway this week in Fort Worth, Texas. Chuck Zimmerman is there.
6: It's time for the 2024 Clean Fuels Conference and to preview the event, I'm talking to Donnell Rehagen. He's the CEO for Clean Fuels. So let's start with uh, describing the connected
10: energy theme. Well, it's very important for an industry like ours. You know, we're still relatively small, but we're growing fast. And so it's important for us to make sure we're bringing all of the parties together that are involved in our industry. And it's something we're very proud of and this conference offers that. Everybody from Feedstock Growers, feedstock processors all the way through retail. So our whole supply chain from the farm field to the fuel pump is represented here at this industry.
6: Well we've got lots of sessions, uh, industry company displays and Lots
10: of networking, so give
6: us an overview of some of the key topics and speakers.
10: Yeah, so we're talking now about uh, multiple fuels. So we rebranded a couple of years ago as the Clean Fuels Conference, um, kind of been the National Biodiesel Conference for several years. So we're going to be talking a lot more this year about renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, obviously biodiesel as well. And so it's about bringing all of those fuels and all those same feedstocks to to a growth pattern that's really going to be sustainable for everyone involved. So it's going to be a great conference. One of those uh,
6: networking opportunities is the Clean Fuels Vehicle Showcase and Happy Hour.
10: That sounds like it goes together very well. Uh, Tell us what we're going to see there. Well, we've got a lot of OEMs increasingly that are uh, approving higher and higher blends of biodiesel. And so we're going to see some of those vehicles. And and, uh, attendees here will have a chance to even uh, drive around the streets here Fort Worth on some of those. And so it's always a proud moment for us to have those major OEMs who are seeing the value of our fuels and and, uh, applying those into their own fuel
6: There's a lot of support for the Clean Fuels Foundation, and we have an auction here, which has got some great stuff uh, for folks to bid on. But uh, tell us a little bit about how the foundation is doing.
10: Yeah, the foundation's always been an integral part, kind of quiet in the back, you know, backseats, so to speak. But that foundation, uh, one of the key roles they play is allowing us to bring congressional staff persons into, uh, you know, kind of a, a come and see opportunity with biodiesel, renewable diesel, and SAF. And so the money that we raise here helps to support those kinds of activities, as well as just some general education and outreach.
6: Anything else you might want to talk
10: to about
6: uh, this year's conference we didn't touch on?
10: Well, we're very excited. I mentioned earlier the the markets that we're starting starting to see turn around to our fuels in rail and marine and, of course, aviation. And so this conference, we're going to have an opportunity to talk to some of the major airlines, uh, American Airlines, Southwest Airlines will be represented on our stage, as well as BNSF Railroads. And those are huge opportunities for our industry. And so we're happy to have them come and speak to our attendees directly about what they See happening as far as demand for our fuels um, in their industries.
6: All right, well, thank you very much, Donnell, for visiting with me here. We're at the 2024 Clean Fuels Conference. I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting.
1: This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. For today's featured interview, we go once again to the Cattle Industry Convention. I'm at
6: CattleCon 2024. And I have with me Ethan Lane with NCBA. And Ethan, for people that don't know, tell us what you do for NCBA.
11: Uh, I am the Vice President of Government Affairs. I oversee operations in the uh, Washington, D.C. office.
6: We kicked off today's um, schedule. We did a D.C. issues update, and uh, you moderated that with um, a, a group of folks. How about uh, just giving us a little overview of the um, topics discussed and what you want wanted um, producers to know that you guys are doing when it comes to policy?
11: Well, you know, we're always uh, operating in kind of a three-ring circus in Washington. You know, you have the legislative branch up on Capitol Hill that is um, sometimes more effective than other times. You know, right now, obviously, everyone in the country is watching the, the gridlock we're seeing there, the tight margins. Um, so a lot of conversation about how we operate in that environment on the statutory side, right? So making laws, changing laws, um, you know, that's a lot of the, the work that, that my team does is in that space. But once those laws are made, you know, you move over to the executive branch and, and you start talking to the federal agencies that have to implement those those new laws. Um, and, and that is also a big part of our portfolio, whether it's um, you know implementing um, and, and dealing as, with an, as an industry with new electronic ID requirements or labeling requirements that we are expecting uh, on product of the USA labeling um, in the next few months you know continuing to push back on the Bureau of Land management's uh, rule for conservation use on public lands in the west uh, numerous Endangered Species Act. Fights around the country, all of those are regulatory actions that the administration is implementing based on statute you know that was passed at uh, sometime in the past uh, in Congress so that 's another bucket that we 're always working on and then sort of the the avenue of last resort and the one that you want to avoid if possible, but it, anymore in, in our society it 's hard to is the the judicial branch right and that 's when you go to court um, and and you know we are always involved in a number of lawsuits sometimes we 're Uh, They're defending something, a decision that's been made by an agency. Other times we're there because we don't like an agency decision. Um, We're often um, there with with allies in other industries. WOTUS is a great example of that, you know, a strong coalition of a couple dozen groups that uh, are all united on that issue. Um, Others, we're going it alone. Um, but, you know, uh, it's a good chance to talk about all those different segments of the federal government and how they play off of each other because they're, they're not in, you know, they're not all isolated. I mean, you know, there's any action on one triggers new movement in other parts of that. And that team uh, is structured in a way that they're they're kind of monitoring all of those at once rather than having a lobbying section and a regulatory section. My team is issue specific. Um, so they're they're watching all the scopes at the same time.
6: So one that's very important, people are hoping we might get something done pretty soon is just is farm bill. What's your outlook of where we're at, or or where we may get to? Sure.
11: You know, there was hope earlier in the year that uh, Chairman Thompson was going to get some time in March uh, to to move the House version of the farm bill. Um, you know, the spending bill bleeding over into early March is is making that pretty challenging. You know, it takes a couple weeks of floor time to get through a farm bill and, and you just can't do that if you have a spending fight at the beginning of the month we're hearing from some sources close to to the uh, to the House ag committee leadership that uh, they're hoping to find that window in April. Uh, to to do that work and, and get that process started, you know we know there's a lot of uh, activity happening behind the scenes, um, but they still have some work to do to to put the pieces together. You know there's still some questions on how to deal with that IRA money, that twenty billion dollars that's been so discussed over the last few years as far as you know conservation spending. Um, you know we we still have I think probably some discussions to be had on the on the nutrition side, which is eighty five percent of that bill. Um, you know, the, the food assistance programs, um, you know, and, and all of that has to happen uh, in a way that there's some confidence a bill's going to pass. That, that maybe means, you know, that by the time uh, folks go to the polls to vote, um, you know, we're, we're at a point where they can start to get some movement there. I know they're wanting to do it sooner than that. Um, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for them to, to do that, despite all of their good work. Uh, you know, in this environment where you have that Freedom Caucus end of the Republican Party voting no, even on their own priorities, you know, if they don't like the way the wind is blowing that day, um, that's very difficult to do a $1.5 trillion farm bill package in, in that kind of environment. So um, I think the idea is to get as much real good solid work done on a product as you can and then look for that right opportunity to get it passed.
6: What would you put as some of the other really highly important issues that you're dealing with
11: uh, and will be continuing to deal with here? At the top of the list, without question, is this surge of animal rights activity we're seeing in the ag space. You know, it's a farm bill year or farm bill couple years. Um, and, and those groups, about forty-five of them, at the beginning of this process, and it's everything from HSUS and ASPCA to direct action everywhere, and you know, i, I organization for competitive markets. They're they're operating on animal rights funding, um, and and uh, farm action. Um, their goal is to, in their words, remake the American food system in this farm bill. And what they mean by that is, uh, put all of us out of business, right? Put our put our producers around the country out of business. Um, and, and they don't really hide that too much, although their tactics have changed, and they've. they've They've tilted up these these astroturf groups is what we call them. It's like fake grassroots groups. Um, you know, they they're, uh, they're, they hire lobbyists in Washington and and they they go up to Capitol Hill and they say, don't listen to those big ag groups. Uh, you know, those aren't real farmers. We're the real farmers because you know we're closer to the ground or you know. We're, and, and and often it's one or two people that, that have some you know some some goats or a couple cattle or whatever else that they that they drag up to the hill and say, see here's our farmer and, and they disagree and this is who you need to listen to. They spend a ton of money on media. They spend a ton of money on advertising and newspapers. They have panel trucks driving around Washington, D.C., pushing back on the EATS Act um, to help the pork industry with their Prop 12 problem, uh, pushing back on checkoffs. They want to gut the federal checkoff system. Um, they're hitting on all cylinders on all these different areas. Um, it's not resonating. Lawmakers are smarter than that. They can see through that. But, boy, it's relentless. And it's, it's something that we're spending a lot of time on.
6: How about when it comes to something like uh, what we call the border crisis and... The things that are could be being done through our leadership in DC have not been, but it's it's kind of a constantly changing thing. But it's a it's a serious issue that has a, a real impact, especially on cattle ranchers along that border area. This goes all over the country at this point.
11: Oh, it does, and and you know I think you have a couple different uh, stories happening at once there, right? You know you have members of Congress that have spent a lot of time going down to the border, looking at the problems down there, seeing how, uh, how broken that system is. Um, I think they're going back down again next week for another hearing uh, at Eagle Pass. You know, this is something that has really captured the attention of lawmakers because their constituents are calling them about it. Uh, the Senate has been working on a compromise there. Senator Lankford um, has been negotiating for months, trying to get something put together that makes sense. Um, you know, That has not been received well in the House. Uh, you know, and, and so here we sit, and and there's this added element of the presidential campaign, right? And you hate to politicize these things. But the reality is that's the environment we live in. And, you know, I think there's some hesitancy to give uh, the Biden administration a win, right, and, and, and save it for Trump maybe. And, and that kind of seems to be what he's telling the Hill right now is, is, you know, don't give this guy a win. Let me be the one to, to fix it. Um, the, the, the issues are pretty critical. So I, I hope that's not the, the, the route that we go. Uh, but it certainly is something that um, uh, is lacking agreement on how to get a path forward right now.
6: So when you had your session today, you had standing room only, so showed huge interest in this. And I think that that's a good thing for our producers to understand. The issues. How, how do you think um, things went over with our group that was there, members? You know,
11: a lot of positive feedback. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of good questions. You know, we try to present kind of the top line issues, and then we know this is the best thing about this industry, right? You get six or seven hundred people in a room like that this morning, um, and and the things that you never thought of that somebody came to this meeting just to talk about that issue, right? And, and you can tell that story 7,000 times over in this building this week. Um, and that's the coolest thing about those kind of meetings is, you know, hey, I came all this way because I, this is bugging me and it's causing problems on my ranch. And what do you guys think about this and what can you do to help? A um, lot of that dialogue, uh, I think we spent the last 45 minutes of that meeting, uh, you know, talking about uh, some of those questions and answers. Um, and that's the good stuff. That is, uh, and, and it was all, it was all a, a good back and forth and, and some helpful information, hopefully both ways. So uh, it, was, it was great. All the meetings have been packed. Um, that's been such a, a cool thing to see, um, you know, record crowds in all of our meetings, a lot of engagement, uh, excited producers. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good thing to see.
6: All right. Well, thank you very much, Ethan, for taking the time to visit with me here. We are at Calicon 2024. I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting.
1: You're listening to the Agonet News Hour. USDA's latest State Stories report focuses on both topsoil moisture and winter wheat crop condition for the month of January. Rodman reports.
2: Featured aspects of USDA's end of January edition of its State Stories report Topsoil Moisture and Winter Wheat Condition. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey starts with topsoil moisture condition ratings.
12: The states that are reporting topsoil moisture, we have seen a marked moistening trend across much of the United States.
2: With Rippy also noting improvement over the past month in the south and lower midwest.
12: Among those 25 or so states that are reporting topsoil moisture at the end of January, we see quite a list that have topsoil moisture where it is now at least 30% surplus. And almost all that list of states is an area that has been affected by drought quite significantly at some point during the summer or autumn of 2023
2: led by Ohio at 62%
12: topsoil moisture surplus. If you flip to the dry side, we still have a few pockets of dryness. Many of them are in either the far north or the far southwest parts of the United States
2: with significant dryness in states such as New Mexico and Montana.
12: New Mexico, we have had some precipitation there. Some areas have benefited, but still 80% topsoil moisture, very short to short. As we approach the end of January, we see Montana leading the north at 68%. North Dakota, right next door, 38%, very short to short.
2: Meanwhile, 14 of 18 major winter wheat reporting states offer data on crop condition for USDA's end of January state stories report. Take-home points from that report include Montana, post-mid-January freeze, and little snow cover.
12: Montana reports that there was moderate to severe freeze damage on 21% of the crop, 32% of the winter wheat crop reporting light freeze damage, but perhaps more importantly, nearly half of the crop, 47%, there is no observed freeze damage at this point. Based on that, Montana, despite the cold wave in mid-January, seeing an improvement in the overall crop health, at least based on observations, 21% of the crop reported very poor Poor a month ago. That is now 3%.
2: I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
1: That's today's Top Agriculture News. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us.
0: To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit AgnetWest online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halbertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.